All right, so uh, we're in this um, series, despite the fact that it's, it's a little bit cooler out this morning, we're still in a summer series called They Say, I Say, and if you've been here with us, what we've been looking at is Jesus' teaching in the famed Sermon on the Mount. Everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, I love the Sermon on the Mount, until you actually read the Sermon on the Mount. And then if you didn't like it when you read it, you should really try practicing it because it's really not very easy at all. And most of the reason is because Jesus takes things that are kind of perceived as common cultural knowledge and he ups the ante on them and oftentimes changes the meaning. Um, and he does so often at, at, at convicting depths. I want to give a shout-out this morning to Dave and Tim. They did such a wonderful job over the last two Sundays. In fact, I'm going to pick up where Tim left off last week. Um, if you want the precursor to this, they say, I say, go back and check out Tim's teaching last Sunday. It was really good. I watched it online. Tim got ordained the week before, and it's like suddenly everything's changed. This sermon was just unbelievable, right? By the way, you're also in luck, church, because first service, I preached this whole thing with my fly down, which was very awkward. Um, so uh, the worst part was, like, I'm like, I got all this great stuff to teach people, and I got done, and I almost had 10 people come up to me and go, you know, your fly was down. I'm like, that's all anybody got out of this whole thing, right? All this work, you just, that's it. Jesus gathers with the crowds. And he begins another they say. He goes, you've heard that it was said, they say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. As I said, Tim brought some context to that last week. Essentially, Jesus is taking an Old Testament teaching that was uh, meant for judges in Israel and how they were to rule in court cases. And they took this teaching and they corrupted it and applied it to personal relationships. And you can imagine how detrimental that is in personal relationships. But the truth is that they say uh, here is not just an Old Testament teaching. It's a present reality for all of us. All of us live in a culture that is replete with eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. When I was a kid, um, my mom was a great mom, and she had all these great mom techniques. Um, she conditioned me very well. For example, whenever I would say, Mom, everybody's going, or Mom, everybody has one. I remember I wanted a moped. Mom, everybody's got one. I need to get one. Uh, or everybody's doing it. Her ridiculously annoying but yet brilliant question was always this. Parents, does anybody know what her question was? Who's everyone? Right? Why? Because she knew I knew like two or three kids, right? And so, you know, I didn't even bother listening to three kids because it was embarrassing, and I'd put my head down and just walk away. And again, she would do the same thing when I would say the age-old, well, you know, Mom, whenever I disagreed with something she said, you know, Mom, they say, and my mom would always go, tut, tut, who's they? Oh, I just kind of walk away. In this case, what Jesus is teaching about in this eye for an eye thing, the they is not limited to first century Palestinians. The they is not limited to first century Israelites or Romans. The eye for an eye concept is alive and well here in Mendham, New Jersey. You know it. We live for it. We live under it. I'll give you some examples because you'll, it'll start to resonate with you. We're going to play a little game, okay? It's called um, fill in the blank. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Here's fill in the blank number one. Don't get mad. Get. Oh. Alive and well, right? 
Here's the second one. Blank is a dish best served cold. Revenge is a dish. But how do you guys know all this? Okay, now here's the next one. Now back up. Don't put it up yet. The key to this next one is I don't want an external response because it could get me fired. I just want an internal response. Are you with me on this? All right, here's the next one. Payback is a... Right? You see, the eye for an eye is alive and well in Mendham, New Jersey. This isn't an old teaching. It's a very present-day teaching, right? The whole come at me, bro. That's my tough guy. Anybody know who Danielle Brigoli is? Danielle Brigoli uh, was the teenage girl that was on Dr. Phil a couple of years ago. And she was just totally disrespecting her mom. And the crowd started yelling at her and making fun of her. And anybody remember her, her, her words that they've made t-shirts out of? How about that? Cash me outside. How about that? That's the world that you and I live in. Now, even the pacifists amongst us, while we might not threaten outright payback of our own doing, what we wish upon people is karma. I don't know really what karma is, except that in our world, it's kind of become wishful thinking for a mysterious, a mysterious longing for revenge. Well, karma will, you know, karma, by the way, gets the same saying as, uh, uh, as payback. Jesus says, and I think you'd agree, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, I say, do not resist an evil person. Now, that's a very confusing teaching, mostly because the translation is less than adequate here from the Greek. And because it's not the best translation of this, it winds up often being misapplied, and it can be a horribly dangerous teaching. Tim talked a little bit about it last week. Jesus is not saying in the face of evil or injustice, do nothing. Oh, don't do anything. Right? The Nazis are marching through Berlin. Don't do anything. In the face of evil, do nothing. Lay down. Keep being abused. Become somebody's patsy. In the face of evil or injustice, Jesus turns over tables. In the face of evil or injustice, when Paul was arrested incorrectly because he was a Roman citizen, he appealed. The Scriptures replete with calls for us to stand against injustice. The whole Ephesians armor of God thing, right? A better translation, and some of the modern translations are changing this, would be something like this. But I tell you not to try to get even with a person who's done something to you. Now, this is a prevalent teaching in all of the Scriptures. It's something all of us as followers of Jesus, those of us who would claim to be followers of Jesus, should really kind of be embracing at deep levels. You remember Peter? Oh, Peter, I, you know, walked on water, Peter. Jesus, I love you, I'll never deny you, Peter. Three times before the rooster crows, Peter. You remember Paul? Paul never met Jesus. He was a persecutor of the early church, but he met the resurrected Jesus, and he became, you know, the greatest change agent for the church in the history of the world. He wrote most of the New Testament. Here's what they said. Paul said, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Peter said, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Now, stick with me here, because what we've just discovered is that for the followers of Jesus, 
the two most natural, normal ways of dealing with injustice or persecution or anger are not the way his followers are supposed to. How do you deal with it? Engage with me. Think for a moment, right? When somebody hurts you, when they inflict pain or injustice, when someone speaks evil of you or takes advantage of you or cheats or, or takes you for granted or cuts you off on Route 80 or is 25 items in the 10 item or less line at ShopRite, something happens in the human condition. One of two things just kind of rear up. The first is, I respond in kind. Come at me, bro. Or, what can I do? Now, both have been spiritualized up, but neither are to be the responses of the followers of Jesus. And so how about you? How do you respond? What's your natural response mechanism? It's likely one of those two. Some of us, and a lot of times it's because of the families we were raised in, for some of us, our natural response to conflict or injustice or abuse is simply passivity, to just be quiet and take it. The truth is that often it's painful to change the status quo of relationships and to confront people in our lives. So instead, we choose just not to, to say anything, to, to just keep taking the hits over and over, to not rock, don't say anything, oh, I don't want to rock the boat, I'm not afraid, I'm afraid of what might happen, what if he gets upset, what if he storms out, I don't want to confront or rebuke, I just, you know, let it be. Some of you grew up in families like that. Maybe you had the explosive father. Some of you did, and everybody walked on eggshells around dad, especially your mom. You never knew who was coming home at night, right? So you made it kind of your pattern that you didn't have friends in the house when dad came home because you didn't know if nice dad or nasty dad was the guy that was walking through the door. So instead of working to fix the situation, mom made it a goal to pacify dad. Nothing gets fixed, right? Like, oh, you know, just... Just leave dad alone. He's had a hard day. Oh, you know, just, it's just dad. You know how he can be. Just. In fact, nothing not only gets fixed, long-term relationships get destroyed. But at the time, it was just easier to let it go. Are you the pacifist? Peace at all costs, at all costs. It doesn't matter. Just, okay, okay, whatever, whatever, son. Or perhaps you're more the vengeance is mine, saith Martin right? You hit me, I hit you, only harder. You hurt me, I hurt you, only worse. You gossip about me, I post about you. Your kid does something to my kid, wait till you see what I have my kid do to your kid. See, the pacifist, the natural reaction of the pacifist, his goal at all costs is peace. The vindictive person's goal at all costs is pain. Some of us, this is where it really gets dangerous, some of us do both. I had a friend years ago, one of the most passive guys I, I ever met, hardly ever even raised his voice. Kind of a, a good guy, loved God, but was kind of caught up in the legalism of being a follower of Jesus. And so, you know, he knew a lot of these teachings about Jesus. And so he was a peace at all cost guy on the outside. 
But on the inside, stuff was churning and churning and churning and churning. And only on one or two occasions did I see it. And it mostly involved when he was with his, it was mostly involved his children, but it would be like I would just watch him take, take the hits, take the hits, take the hits, take the hits. And then one day, boom, the explosion, right? And carnage everywhere. At its most dangerous, this is the guy who goes to the mall, pulls out a gun, shoots everyone up, and the TV reporter shows up at his neighbor's house. And what does the neighbor say almost every time? I'm so surprised because he's such a quiet guy. Or perhaps, and more commonly, it's the husband or the wife who sits silently at home, afraid to confront or deal with issues in a marriage, but instead slowly just permits love to fade and, 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 until all that's left one day is a goodbye note on a pillow. Jesus says, you've heard that these are the responses this is what people, this is what's natural for people. But I'm telling you, not you. And then he gives some examples of what people have referred to as a third way. There's a third way. Jesus calls his followers to be third way people. He starts with this crazy story. He says, if anybody slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. And I want you to see we've highlighted there right cheek, right, and slaps. Those are two important words in the teaching. This is maybe one of the misunderstood and dangerously misapplied teachings in all the Scripture. Why? Because at first glance you read it and you go, well, Jesus is not teaching about a third way at all. He's just doubling down on pacifism. If somebody slaps you, let them slap you again. We use it that way all the time. Well, what can I do? I guess I'll just have to turn the other cheek. I don't have any other option. I'm just going to have to take it. I'm resigned to powerlessness in this. Now, this is really cool. I want you to stick with me because it's, it's, it's out there, but it's pretty cool. The reason this makes no sense to us is there is so much first century cultural connotation in this teaching. Without understanding it, and Jesus' audiences would have understand it, this teaching gets misapplied and is dangerous. So let me show you what Jesus is talking about here. There's a couple of key words that I highlighted already. If someone slaps you, notice it's the word slap. If you go back to your old King James, I think it was smite. In a lot of older translations, it's strike. In newer translations, they've figured out those errors and corrected it to slap. So the word is slap, not, not, not strikes. And notice what cheek they strike you on. Jesus is very specific. The right cheek. Turn to them the other cheek. And if you turn the other cheek, what would that be? That would be the left cheek, right? Teaching. In the first century, your hands had different purposes because they did different things than they do in the 21st century. Your right hand was the hand of purpose and strength and dignity. If you're familiar with the, uh, the Bible, think of the biblical references to the right hand of God. The right hand was the hand you offered to someone, and it was the right hand with which you hit someone. Now, your left hand, in the first century and in many areas of the world today, that's hand has a different purpose. Um, let's say it's used for personal grooming, if you will. Maybe to put it best on a Sunday morning, let me just remind you of this. Toilet paper was not invented to the 6th century, 
And it wasn't manufactured on a large scale until the 17th century. And so in the first century, your, le your left hand was commonly used for other purposes and thus was deemed to be unclean. In fact, one Jewish religious community of Jesus' day, they had a rule that even the gesture with your left hand meant it being expulsion and pen um, penance for 10 days. So in Jesus' day, when you touch someone or hit someone, you use the right hand. It's important for that, understanding this. Second piece of context in the first century, there were, and today, there are two ways you could strike someone. You can hit them with a fist, or you could slap them with the back of your hand. Now, a punch, and this is still true today, you'll stick with me, a punch was the way you would strike someone you perceived to be your equal. Now, you remember, in the first century, right, this is an uh, hierarchical society, right? Everybody knew whose place was whose. The Romans were ahead of the Jews, right? Uh, free men were ahead of slaves. Men were ahead of women. Adults were ahead of children. And so what you did and how you struck someone communicated something. I need a volunteer willing to come up here and not be embarrassed in front of the crowd. How about Greg Belling? Greg, come on up here. Now, the, just come on this side, will you? Because this is my best side, so I need to. Um, now, I, I asked Greg to come up because I think most would agree I could take him, right? So, um, <laughs> so now, let's go back to Jesus' teaching. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So if I was going to punch Greg, which cheek would I hit Greg on? Right. So Jesus is not talking about a punch, and that's why they've corrected this to slap, right? If I was going to slap Greg, which cheek would I hit him on? The left, his right, his right. And hit, you know, I feel like it's uh, the Kennedy, Kennedy thing. His head went back and forward. Um, if I were to slap Greg, right, that would communicate some, something else. A backhanded slap, just like today, is not a blow to injure, but it's a blow to insult and humiliate and degrade. You don't backhand slap an equal. You backhand slap an inferior. Masters backhand slapped slaves. Romans backhand slapped the Jews. The whole point of the blow was to force somebody who was out of line back into a place. One theologian said this. He said, notice Jesus' audience. If anyone strikes you, well, these are people who are used to being struck. They're used to being degraded. He's saying if they, if they strike you, refuse to accept this kind of treatment. Here's how. You turn the other cheek. I strike Greg. Now Greg decides he's going to turn the other cheek. Now how would I have to hit Greg? Can I backhand slap him? All I can do is, and when I punch him, what does that communicate to Greg and everybody around me? He suddenly becomes my equal. Everybody, Greg Billing. Thank you, Greg. See, what happens here is the last thing the master wants to do is establish this underling's equality. The act of defiance by, by turning the other cheek, it renders the master incapable of asserting dominance in the relationship. I mean, you could have his slave beaten, but he can't any longer cow him. By turning the cheek, the inferior is saying... I am a human being just like you. I refuse to be humiliated any longer. If you're going to hit me again, you're going to hit your equal. I'm a child of God. You see, this is 
not violence. This is not pacifism. This is a third way. It's nonviolent resistance. And what it does is it reveals the heart of the oppressor to those who would see it and maybe to the oppressor himself. Jesus goes on. He goes, look, if any of you wants, if anybody wants to sue you, take you to court and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And in Jesus' day, the Romans had this ridiculous system of taxation, and they would just tax, 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 take everything a normal Israelite might have, and if they couldn't get it from them, they would take them to court and get it from them. And so why does Jesus counsel them to give over their undergarments? Well, Jesus goes, look, if you find yourself in this incredibly humiliating, dehumanizing moment, here's what you would do. Hand them your undergarment too, which would leave you standing there naked. And nakedness, some of you know this, was taboo in Judaism. And shame would fall on, shame fell less on the person naked than on the person viewing or causing the nakedness. Some of you know that from the story of Noah, if you're familiar with what goes on in Genesis with his sons. You see, by stripping, the debtor has now brought shame on the creditor. You can imagine people starting to laugh in the courtroom because there stands the creditor covered now in a sense with shame. The poor debtor's outer garment in one hand and his undergarment in the other. The tables suddenly turned. The debtor had no hope of winning the case, but the poor man has transcended his attempt to humiliate him. He rose above the shame, and he's registered a stunning protest against this system the Romans were, had going on. You see, Jesus says there's a third way. And Jesus, he does it again. He goes, if anybody forces you to go one mile, go with them too. This is where we get our saying, you know, go the extra mile. Now, here's the background on this. Rome was occupying Israel, and Roman soldiers were violently ruling over them. And any Roman citizen or, or um, um, any Roman military guy could come up to a civilian at any point. He could be on vacation. He'd be going to temple and say to him, hey, boy, carry my pack. Now, who's supposed to carry packs? Mules. And so the Romans started treating the Israelites like their personal mules. But there was one other thing according to that law that was true. A Roman guard could only ask an Israel citizen to carry it for one mile. So what does Jesus do? He says, look, when you do this, I want you to take the bag, but when you do it, when you get to one mile, keep going. And what happens when, when that happens? What does the oppressor do? What's his reaction? Well, he starts to get nervous because this is an infraction to the Roman military law that could be a problem for him. One theologian put it this way, imagine the soldier's surprise when at the next mile marker, he reluctantly reaches to assume his pack and the civilian says, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. Let me carry it another mile. From a situation of service and imprisonment, the oppressed has once again seized the initiative. They've taken back the power of choice. Now the soldier has to make a decision for which nothing in his previous experiences prepared him. If he enjoyed feeling superior to the vanquished, he can't enjoy it anymore because now he's worried he's going to get caught. Imagine a Roman infantryman pleading with a Jew to give his pack back. No, I really need you to give me that back, bro. Like, seriously, I, I need it back. See, you get it, right? Jesus' audience likely laughed just like you did and said, you know, that's pretty funny. Jesus goes, you know, there's a third way. You don't have to be a patsy. And you don't have to strike them back. 
It's not revenge and it's not passivity. It's reacting to those who abuse or hurt or persecute you in a way that somehow causes them to see and reflect on your humanity and what they're doing to you and how they're treating you. And oftentimes it causes them to to, to reflect on themselves. Jesus says, my followers don't choose the two roads or responses everybody else does. We do it differently. We show them who we are and we show them who they are. And all of it, all of that is rooted in one thing because it's all context for this one difficult teaching. You have heard it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. That was an Old Testament Levitical teaching they misapplied. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's a third way. The third way is rooted in this love of enemies, not being vindictive, not being passive. And then Jesus goes, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be, fill in the blank, that you might be uh, persecuted, taken advantage of, abused, mocked, trampled on, Jesus goes, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus says, for the children of God, there's a third way. We don't get even and we don't get quiet. We choose a third way rooted in love because this is what our Father does. If one of our sole purposes as followers of Jesus is to reflect to the world who God is and what he's doing, this is what he does. God loves his enemies. It is his nature to be kind to wicked and ungrateful people like me. Here's how Paul explained it. This is so cool. He says, for while, if, while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now, I don't know how familiar you are with this teaching, and some of you might be here for the first time this morning and go, dude, I am no enemy of God. I love God. I'm here in church. I must love him. It's nice outside. But what the Scripture teaches over and over again is there's something deep inside us at work. This level of brokenness and sin, it has to do with our pride, uh, left to our own devices, and you've seen it in your own life. We are not neutral players in a world that's kind of set aflame. We add our gas to the fire a little bit too. We're contributors to the brokenness and the evil in it, and thus we become, by very nature, enemies to God's holiness and peace. But even in that nature, though the many times we've forsaken him, though the many times we've tried to go our own way, though the many times we've said, God, I love you, but I'm going on spring break. Would you stay right here? I'll be back in a week. Though the many times we've tried to just milk God for his blessings, even though in many ways we've been enemies of God, he loves us. Now, he doesn't love us in merely words. God did not write a love letter and drop it down, right? He he loves us with action. He sends his only son for us, and thus we become not merely adopted children. In a sense, we become adopted enemies, and we now have our dad's DNA in our genes, and we're supposed to go do the same thing he does. Third-wave followers of Jesus realize something really important. Here's the whole point. 
really important. You have more power in these situations than you could possibly imagine. Loving your enemies has more transformative power than being passive or taking revenge. For those of you who sit here this morning, as a follower of Jesus, you've decided that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by Him. I want you to think with me for a moment. You were once an enemy of God. You were once a sinner far from God. But, but He loved you. And look what that has resulted in in your life. The transformation, the change. I was outside yesterday. It was a beautiful day. And uh, I, I was, went out to wash my car. So I was out there washing my car, and my son John, um, my older son, he was out there, and he wasn't washing his car. He was washing my son Caleb's car. Caleb is 21 years old. He was going back to college. In fact, he left this morning, and uh, Caleb treats his car. I'm not sure how we would dis dis uh, dis describe how he treats his car. When I run out of coffee mugs to drink from, I just go out to Caleb's car and take one of my coffee mugs back, and I bring it inside. And uh, I look over, and John has all of the floor mats out, and he's shampooing each of the floor mats, and he's washing his car. He was out there for a couple hours, and I drove him to the train station last night. I'm like, dude, why'd you wash your brother's car? Like, I was washing my car. And he goes, yeah, you know, Dad, he goes, I just don't remember how stressful it was when I was a kid, and I had to go back to school. And I know, like, if my, if my areas are clean, and that's just one less stress remover for me. So I know he's under a lot of stress, and I just wanted to give that to him as a gift. I'm like, dude, who raised you? I have no idea <laughs> where you came from. I literally said to him in the car as we drove by here last night, and went to Mars, and I said, John, I am so impressed about what Jesus is doing in your life and transforming who you are. Nobody, I don't know anybody that thinks this way. But God is doing something. Somehow my son understood that he was once an enemy of, of God, but now he understands that he's loved by God, and because God loved an enemy, it has transformed the way he lives. Here's how Paul said, look, don't repay evil for evil. Don't do that. We don't do that. Don't take revenge. In fact, he goes, look, leave room for God's wrath. It's written, it's mine to avenge, I'll repay. In other words, don't worry about it. God's going to take care of the injustice. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, now this doesn't sound very loving. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head which is like, what, Jesus? Like, I'm trying to figure you out, man. Like, I thought it was love, and now you want me to heap burning coals on someone's head? That expression, it's a proverb. It comes out of an ancient um, Eastern morning ritual. People used to put ashes on their head to express sorrow, deep sorrow or regret. And what Paul is saying is when you overcome evil with good, when you love your enemy, when you feed your enemy, when, you give, when your enemy's thirsty and you give him something to drink, you're heaping burning coals on his head. It's a call to shame evil people into repentance. It is a peaceful plan to subvert cultural evils. Do you understand the power of loving your enemy? In a speech Abraham Lincoln delivered at the height of the Civil War, he referred to the Southerners as, quote, fellow human beings who were in error. And an elderly lady chastised them for not calling them irreconcilable enemies who must be destroyed. And Lincoln's response is pretty famous. He said, why, madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? 
Some of you know who Bonhoeffer is. He was a German theologian um, who uh, led a rebellion against Hitler and wound up being killed by Hitler. Bonhoeffer said this. This is so good. He goes, Christian love draws no distinction between one enemy and another, except that the more bitter our enemy's hatred, the greater his need for love. By his enmity, political or religious, he is nothing to expect from a follower of Jesus but unqualified love. In such love, there is not inner discord between the private person and official capacity. In both, we're disciples of Christ or we're not Christians at all. Or we're not Christians at all. You see, difficult people don't really cause your spirit problems. Difficult people reveal problems with your spirit. Followers of Jesus, choose a third way. That's what they do. They don't keep getting hit on the same cheek, and they don't hit back. I heard this story this week of, of someone that was listening in on a third-way conversation. They heard a daughter talking to her father, and the father was starting to go a little nuts on the mother again and, and saying some bad things about her mother, and the daughter stopped um, mid, her dad mid-sentence and said, Dad, I want you to know I love you so much, and it's so important to keep a relationship with you, but I've asked you time and time again not to talk about mom like that, so I really just as respectful as I can be, I need to take a break from this conversation, um, and I'm going to call you back later. Now, pacifists would have just stayed there with the same cheek exposed. I don't want to rock the boat. You know, I don't want to say anything. I mean, he's my dad. I shouldn't really say anything. I'm just going to let it keep going. Vindictive people would have said, Dad, I've had it with you. I've told you so many times. I'm done. Don't call me anymore. I've been telling mom to leave you for years. Those are natural responses. She chose a third way. And so can you. Because you're an adopted enemy. You have the DNA of a new father pumping through your veins. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek not to be hit but in hope that as you told the truth and as you chose a third way, a third way in which hopefully you were able to show your enemy who you are. I mean, Joan and I have had to go through these conversations, right? And they're not easy conversations where we'll sit down with one another and go, you know, it usually starts with, when Joan says to me, I really love you, I need to tell you something, I go, oh boy. Um, <laughs> but that's a way to start a conversation. I really love you. But can I just tell you something that's hurting? See, that's a third way conversation. The goal is to turn your cheek, to turn the other cheek, not to be slapped, but in hope for a kiss. Christians, with your enemies, and can I just be honest with you, oftentimes, I don't, none of us know who our enemies are. I don't have any enemies. Let me make it more real. Christians, with those who vote differently than you, right, please, Ruth, please think before you post, is this loving? Christians, with your wife and your husband, and your kids, in those strained relationships, either it's just because you keep taking and taking it and taking it and you never stop and go, son, I love you, but I can't let you do this anymore. I want you to know your dad loves you, but I have to tell you what you're doing. Or if you've maybe you've just been the kind of person that has said, you know what, son, I'm so sick and tired of you. I never want to see you again. Get out of my house. Those are the two natural ways. Jesus says, 
My people choose a third way. Love your enemy. Mm -hmm.